I'm Salima Hamarani, and on today's Making Contact, it's not news that healthcare in the United States is wildly overpriced and unequally distributed. But today, we'll focus on efforts to change that. We are not waiting. We're not waiting for FDA. We're not waiting for the industry. We're not waiting for our doctors to tell us it's okay to do this. We're just doing it. We'll hear about the Open Insulin Project, a group of community scientists and biohackers who are making their own insulin from scratch. And we talked to Dr. Anna Malinau, former president of Physicians for a National Health Program. So I think it's a great project currently for individuals that have a difficult time being able to afford their insulin. But we shouldn't live in a system where people have to depend on those kind of measures in order to provide life-saving medication. Dr. Malinau argues that there's another way to fight drug prices, and it's called Medicare for All. In the wake of the coronavirus pandemic, many Americans are worried about their health insurance. The cost of treating the illness, if a patient ends up in the ICU, can run into the tens of thousands of dollars without coverage, which most people just can't afford. Today, we bring you a piece we produced last year about the rising cost of insulin and the possible effectiveness of Medicare for All, which is at the end of the show. The cost of insulin already plagued people with diabetes, forcing some people to try and ration it. People like Alec Rushan Smith, a young man with type 1 diabetes who tried to ration his insulin after being kicked off of his parents' insurance. Alec passed away in January of 2019, igniting a debate around the cost of drugs in the United States. It's something that Aura Aparicio from Northern California worries about as well. That is my worst fear. That is every type 1 diabetic's worst fear is if you don't have insulin, you will have extremely high blood sugar, you can go into a coma, and you will die. Okay, so you're going to show me where the insulin is? Okay, sure. So in my refrigerator, next to our salad dressings, (laughs) (laughs) under the eggs, I have my... My name's Aura Aparicio. A lot of people think that type 1 diabetes is just juvenile diabetes, and I actually was diagnosed at 35. I was diagnosed during my pregnancy with my first daughter. And you have two different types, is, is that both types? Yeah, so this is Lantus, the purple one. This is the one that is the long acting insulin. Usually when you're pregnant, they do a glucose test. And for some reason, my glucose test was done at the tail end. And sure enough, my blood sugar was like in the high 500s. Target is usually like 99. And they said, we don't understand why you're not in a coma. I was hoping it was gestational diabetes and that it would go away after the pregnancy. But no, my pancreas basically just stopped producing insulin instantly. And it was an incredibly difficult time in my life. I felt completely overwhelmed. So do these pens have the... um syringe on it or do you no I can show you that I have my little what I call my insulin pack no this is where you put the the sharp right here oh, okay mm-hmm. so then you this is my PSA right here listen to yourself listen to your gut I did tell my nurse practitioner that I felt like something was off and there were all of these kind of clues I was extremely thirsty all the time, and I was having to go to the bathroom all the time because I was drinking so much water. And then something else that's kind of a little um, icky, there was an ant trail going to the hamper. 
And we didn't know until later in reading about this is that my clothes had really high sugar on it. <laughs> Can I see? Oh, what's in here? Oh yeah. So this is my this is my lifeline right here. So I just have a little pouch, and I try and keep things separate because this is Lantus. And Type one diabetes is where your cells that create or produce insulin start attacking each other. So it's an autoimmune deficiency disease. Type 2 diabetes, your body does produce insulin but cannot regulate it. Some people do have to take some insulin as type 2 diabetics. Um, type 1 diabetics, you have to in order to stay alive. <laughs> I do multiple daily injections. I have two types of insulin that I take. One is a long-acting insulin, and the brand name that I use is Lantus. And that gives me a base. And then I have a fast-acting insulin, which the brand name that I use is Humalog. And that one, you have to calculate how many carbohydrates you're going to eat during a meal. And then you do the math and figure out how much insulin you need to give yourself. Okay, so back to my little pack here. I have my glucometer and I have my test strips that are in here. So I'm very fortunate that my husband works for the city and county of San Francisco. They have a very wonderful health plan, so I'm on his health plan as well as our two daughters. I do think of if one day my husband's not here or he loses his job, what will I do? And last night I just started having this fear dream about losing my little bag that I have that I put in my purse where I store my insulin and all of my um, diabetic supplies. And I just woke up with this terrible like tightness in my chest and feeling just anxiety about losing what is basically my lifeline. I, we're talking about insulin, but there's all sorts of other things. You know, there's the glucometer to check the glucose, there's the test strips, there's the needles. and. Other people that are on pumps, are on insulin pumps or CGMs, continuous glucose monitors, those are extremely expensive. So I'm very fortunate to have the health insurance, but it's always in the back of my mind. You know, what if I don't have insulin? There's a lot of people I've been reading a lot and hearing about people dying because they've had to ration their insulin. People should not be penalized because they have an organ in their body that doesn't function. <laughs> that was Aura Aparicio sharing her story about how she depends on access to insulin to survive. An Aura situation is common. People who depend on insulin constantly worry about its cost. And as the price of insulin continues to rise, more and more patients are ending up in emergency care from trying to ration their insulin. But there are some solutions. Reporter Christy Cole introduces us to a community of citizen scientists who are trying to help diabetics take control of their own care. Perhaps they're more local, and when people get in, perhaps walking more medically, like this is a way it works, just step in. We're at the Counterculture Labs, a community-based science lab in Oakland, California, where a group of people are meeting to discuss the next steps for their organization, the Open Insulin Project. Anthony DeFranco is one of the founders and has type 1 diabetes. As the project has made progress, so we've had to uh, figure out how 
we're going to organize the actual production of medicine by people for themselves to use. While one group sorts out business plans around some folding tables, a few others are filling vials with yeast cells in the lab area. Yeah, and one more up. So it would be, it would be awesome if you can... The Open Insulin Project is a DIY endeavor to make low-cost insulin. The group here are all volunteers. And you, have, you have to let them sit uh, with the bleach for at least one hour to be sure. Jan has a PhD in biochemistry from France and does not yet have a permit to work in the U.S. I really uh, value the political aspect of it. It's not only about science and how to produce insulin, but also how we can create a different model, how to distribute insulin, and how to make a manufacturing place will not be run only for the profit, but also for the interest of, of the people and the patient. I mean, um, if you put some kind of antibacterial thing like hanamycin in the culture for growing yeast, would that inhibit yeast? Depends which one you put. Like hanamycin? Also, one of the goals of uh, Counterculture Lab is to allow people which don't have a scientific degree and uh, tr- uh, academic train, uh, training to come and do science. And you have to learn how to communicate in a more accessible way. And then what you, you do is you uh, grow some yeast and by, to modify them, you mix the yeast you grow with the plasmid. So Jan trains others as lab techs to help him. The process is complicated, but basically they're inserting DNA that has instructions for making insulin into yeast cells. And what will be left in the solution will be the media and your, your protein of interest. That protein of interest is one that can make insulin. The process of making this protein is no different than what the major insulin makers have done. What's special about what Jan and his team have done is they've developed their insulin-producing proteins from scratch. The group is looking for a way to get their insulin to patients. They're looking to get regulatory approval for manufacturing the medicine and to figure out how to scale up production. More importantly, the project wants to keep its methods for making insulin in the public domain so that local insulin factories will pop up around the U.S. and the world operated by patients. There are a lot of reasons why people should be making their own medicine and should have control over the means of doing that. We're seeing right now a system where people don't control the the means of making their own medicine, and it has lately been really ruthlessly exploiting people with diabetes, and a lot of them have not been able to afford their insulin because of regular price increases. Today, the Subcommittee on Oversight and Investigations is holding a hearing entitled, quote, Priced Out of a Life-Saving Drug, Getting Answers on the Rising Cost of Insulin. This is the second part of a hearing. Congresswoman Diana DeGette, Democrat from Colorado, kicks off a hearing to examine why insulin prices have gone up so much. As the committee is well aware, Despite the fact that insulin has been around now for almost 100 years, it has become outrageously expensive. For instance, the price of insulin has doubled since 2012 after nearly tripling in the past 10 years. We've all heard stories... DeGette shares what she's heard about insulin affordability issues from the people she represents. 
Sierra's been struggling for over a year and a half to pay for her insulin. Even after rationing her insulin, she's still paying over $700 a month. It's simply unacceptable that anyone in this country cannot access... Eventually, DeGette engages the panel that includes officials from the three insulin makers and three pharmacy benefits managers. Um, so, so here's the thing, is everybody's saying, well, sure, the list price is high, but there's all these workarounds. But not everybody gets the workarounds. And the question is, why is the list price so high? So I'm going to ask... Why is it so high? The pharmaceutical industry had a chance to respond during the hearings. Doug Langa, president of insulin maker Novo Nordisk, gives a response that is repeated throughout the hearing. There is this perverse incentive and, and misaligned incentives and this uh, encouragement to keep list prices high. And we've been participating in that system because the higher the rebate, the higher the, higher the list so price, you the think higher it's, the rebate. So you also think it's because the rebates, that the prices have gone up so much in the last 10 years? There's a significant demand for rebates. We spend okay, almost $18 I'm, I'm sorry, Ms. Tergoning? The pharmacy benefits managers, or PBMs, were also present. Here's Thomas Moriarty, executive vice president for pharmacy benefits manager, CVS. Okay, now, Mr. Moriarty, I bet you have a different perspective on why the list price of insulin is so high. Well, Chairwoman, uh, rebates are discounts, and as we've disclosed, more than 98% of those discounts go back to our clients. I understand, but why do you think the list prices are so high? Um, I can't answer that. That is the pharmaceutical manufacturer's purview. But you don't think it's because of discounts? I do not, no. One by one, the pharmacy benefits managers, or PBMs, blame the insulin makers for the high price. But the insulin makers say they're forced to raise prices to make up for the rebates given by the PBMs. So the industry isn't going to come clean about insulin skyrocketing prices. And that means we're still left asking, why is the cost of insulin so high? There's a complicated web of the reason why the price of insulin has gone up. But in a nutshell, it is this. It's because they can. Jessica Ching is a member of Counterculture Labs and the Open Insulin Project. She has type 1 diabetes. So I'm a big do-it-yourselfer. Um, I learned many years ago to take my own health into my hands, and I do all kinds of things. Jessica is like a growing number of diabetics who take a DIY approach to treating their disease. Jessica organizes a group of diabetics who meet regularly to learn about and build an artificial pancreas. Like this gathering in a Santa Clara conference room on a Saturday afternoon. Joe Moran is helping Amy Tenderick install some software on her smartphone that will connect her blood sugar monitor to her insulin pump. It's right now, it's, it's a cobbling together a bunch of products to try to recreate what your pancreas does. This makeshift device is not available yet from any company. So what these people are doing is not approved by the FDA. But that's the state of some diabetes care right now. We are not waiting. We're not waiting for FDA, we're not waiting for the industry, we're not waiting for our doctors to tell us it's okay to do this. We're just, we can do this, and this is important to our lives and our children's safety, so we're just doing it. So there's always concerns um, about anything that's, you know, not supported, that's not FDA evaluated and approved. The flip side of that is that insulin is a dangerous drug, and for decades now, we've been throwing people out there with this insulin saying, take it, try to figure out your dosing. And people make mistakes all the time. That's why people end up in insulin shock. And, you know, it's a very scary, actually, drug, especially when you're giving it to a small child. So people with type 1 are comfortable using technology that's made outside the normal industry government process. 
But what happens when an actual drug like insulin is made by a community lab like Open Insulin? I put this question to Brian Roberts. He's head of clinical development at Resolute Bio. His company is at the beginning stages of developing an insulin that would be taken once a week by patients with type 2 diabetes. For our insulin program, we would anticipate about a 10 to 15 year discovery and development track. And that is why there aren't many companies developing novel insulins, and it really is in the domain of the larger pharmaceutical companies, a few in particular. For chronic diseases where you need to demonstrate patient safety in a large number of clinical trials, uh, that process can take at least 10 years. So Resolute is making a new insulin. Brian Roberts understands that his company is in for a lengthy process, one that is long due to the emphasis on safety. That's what he's concerned about with a project like Open Insulin. I believe that the solutions that are being worked on via community-based science organizations are admirable and may be part of the solution as long as they are operating within the constraints that are meant to protect patient safety. But safety for type 1 patients struggling to pay for their insulin might look different than safety for people with other ailments. That's what some researchers are saying. So my name is uh, Jean Pecou. Jean is a professor of biological and chemical engineering at Colorado State University. His lab sponsors graduate student research on low-cost manufacturing of insulin. He spoke to me via Squadcast. When you end up in a situation where you have extremely safe drugs that are essentially inaccessible because of the price, maybe there is a middle ground for drugs that may be slightly less safe, but much safer than the absence of drugs. I'm Jenna Gallegos. Jenna is a postdoc student in Jean's lab at Colorado State. I think what the Open Insulin Project is trying to do is they're trying to put that balance in the hands of patients. We can imagine a future where patients who are more informed can understand some of the risks involved and decide for themselves what that, where that trade-off between access and safety should be. I'm Christy Cole, reporting from Oakland. You'll find links to the Open Insulin Project at the Making Contact website, radioproject.org. And to explore the larger context of the cost of medication and healthcare, I sat down with a doctor named Anna Malinau. She's a past president of Physicians for National Healthcare Program. Dr. Malinau has taken care of undocumented, refugee, and low-income children in Cleveland, Houston, and Pittsburgh, and is currently a pediatrician in San Francisco. She said she's excited about projects such as the Open Insulin Project, but she has some reservations. So I think it's a great project currently for individuals that have a difficult time being able to afford their insulin. But we shouldn't live in a system where people have to depend on those kind of measures in order to provide life-saving medication. Dr. Malinow thinks there's another way to provide diabetic patients with the drugs that they need to survive. And it's called Medicare for All. So Medicare is a single-payer system that we have in the United States for individuals that are 65 and over and also for individuals that have end-stage renal disease. 
And um, it was created in 1965, passed by Congress. It was created to include all the seniors. At that time, about 50% of seniors lived under poverty because of the fact that their health care costs were so high. And once we were able to pull all the seniors into Medicare, their poverty levels really went down significantly. Medicare for all is also not like Obamacare. The difference between Obamacare and Medicare is huge. So Medicare is a publicly funded, privately delivered healthcare system. And that means that anybody over 65 and under 65 would be included in the system. So everybody in, nobody out. It also means that all doctors would be in network. So you wouldn't have anybody out of your network. So that's Medicare for all. Now, Obamacare keeps the system that we have in place. And so the way that I like to think of our healthcare system is like a pie. About 50% of us have employer-sponsored health insurance. About 7% of us have non-group private insurance. About 20% of us have Medicaid. About 14% of us have Medicare. And then almost 10% of us, or 29 million individuals, are uninsured. So what happened with Obamacare is that their purpose, their goal, was to decrease the number of uninsured, right? And if you think of this as a pie, and you've got certain slices of the pie, in order to shrink one piece of the pie, then all you need to do is just make the other slices of the pie bigger, right? And that's precisely what Obamacare did. Basically, it mandated that everyone either be covered through private health insurance or through Medicaid if they were eligible. Unfortunately, just increasing the number of uninsured Americans isn't enough. So among the insured, 44 million Americans are actually underinsured. That means that they spend either 5 to 10% of their income just on health care. And so that means that a lot of people are not going to go to the doctor because they know that they have a huge deductible that they have to face every single year, or they have huge co-pays that they have to face every year, or they're not going to get the prescription drugs because they know that they have huge co-pays as well. And yet, despite all the health care spending by patients and by the government itself, the United States remains a surprisingly unhealthy country. So we have an extremely expensive healthcare system that takes up almost 20% of our GDP. And yet we are number 24 in the world in healthy life expectancy, number 25 in preventable deaths, and number 37 in uh, healthcare systems overall. So despite the fact that we outspend almost every other country by twice as much, our outcomes are not twice as good. So how do we get here? First of all, why did we end up with a system where half of us get our insurance through our jobs? The history of, of health insurance in the United States is very, very interesting. And it started in the, in the 20s. Most people were not insured, and that's because healthcare costs really were not that big, right? But as medicine advanced, the healthcare costs advanced as well. And in the 30s, there was a wage price freeze and employers, in order to attract employees, workers, gave them benefits instead of increasing their salaries, right? And so this was one way to get workers to come to work in these companies. And it just perpetuated itself to the point where today, many, many employers offer health insurance, and that's a huge you know, bargaining chip, right, that unions are constantly fighting in order to be able to retain their health benefits because they're so, so expensive and so important. 
But relying on your employer to give you health insurance has a lot of downsides. More people are changing jobs. Most people, I believe, have to change health insurance every two years or so because of the fact that they keep changing jobs. And employers actually are the ones that are choosing your health insurance for you. Not to mention that this idea of having an employer provide health care came at a time when a lot of people had salaried lifetime work. And these days, a lot of us work part-time or freelance or a part of the gig economy. And we're not getting health care through that kind of contract work. That's why doctors like Anna Malinow think moving to a universal health plan is so important. So there are many benefits to moving to a Medicare for All system. For one, as I mentioned before, everybody's in and nobody is out. That means that all residents in the United States are covered, and it covers them from birth or probably from conception to death. It is comprehensive so that it covers all preventative and primary care, inpatient, outpatient, uh, emergency care. It covers mental health, substance abuse. It covers hearing, vision, dental. It covers uh, physical therapy. It'll also, most importantly, overturn the Hyde Amendment and provide reproductive health and reproductive rights for women as well as abortion. It becomes a true comprehensive package. It is universal, as I said. It is accessible. And the other thing is that it is affordable because one of the things about our healthcare system that everybody says all the time, oh, we can't afford to have Medicare for all. Well, what we can't afford is what we have today. And I really do think right now we're in this sort of massive apex where there's just massive support for Medicare for All. And I think the reason why there's such massive support is because things have gotten so bad. I don't believe that things have been this bad before. People are really suffering. They are really going into bankruptcy, and uh, they're really afraid. And so I think that that's why there's this massive support. Now, having said that there's massive support, I have to say that there's going to be massive resistance because we spend $3.5 trillion in healthcare every single year. So those individuals, those stakeholders that are bringing home that much money are really going to resist not being able to take that money home. Medicare for all, in other words, is going to be a tough fight because there are so many players and private insurance is such an entrenched system. Private insurance companies are going to be hugely impacted by Medicare for All. Pharmaceutical companies are going to be hugely impacted because under Medicare for All, the government can negotiate with the pharmaceutical companies to get the best price, which is exactly what happens everywhere else in the world. And that's the reason why in the United States we spend twice as much on average for pharmaceutical drugs than other countries in the world. But there are still ways to get universal health care in the United States. So this is how we fight for Medicare for All. One, if you're interested in learning more about upcoming policy battles, there are a number of bills that we've linked to on our website, radioproject.org. And while it's unlikely that a Trump administration is going to support Medicare for All, future administrations might. And there's growing support among some Democratic candidates running in the next election. Advocates for Medicare for All also say that exploring it is a way to learn, share, and build our vision. So I say that you talk with everybody that you know about how important this is and how health has impacted you and ask people for their healthcare stories. You would be amazed at what happens when people start to open up about 
how they have suffered under the healthcare system and let them know that there is a better system out there. Uh, it's not a socialized medicine system. That is what they have in the UK, which by the way, is a great healthcare system and they have better outcomes than we do on many ways. But a socialized healthcare system is public funding and public delivery. In a single payer system like Medicare or in Medicare for All, you have publicly funded and privately delivered system. So it is not socialized. So maybe just sit and talk with people, become educated on the subject and talk with all your family, your colleagues, your coworkers, your friends, and let them know how important this issue is for everyone. That was Dr. Anna Malinow, past president of Physicians for a National Health Program. And that does it for this edition of Making Contact and RadioProject.org. And we want to hear from you. What are your thoughts on rising drug prices and Medicare for all? Join the conversation on Facebook. Our Twitter handle is Making underscore Contact. And on Instagram, we're Making Contact Radio Project. The Making Contact team includes Monica Lopez, Anita Johnson, Sabine Blazin, Aisa Chowdhury, and Lisa Rudman. I'm Salima Hamarani. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.